Good morning, everyone. If you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 today. We are in our fifth week of our Therefore series where we're looking at these statements made throughout the the New Testament where uh, uh, therefore where a a teaching is made and it's connected with an action that goes after it. And we're going to primarily center around Colossians 3, 5 today, Um, but we're going to be looking a lot at the context. So I would like for you to take the time now to get your Bibles or devices open to there because we're going to talk about the text quite a bit and I really want you to be able to look at it and see it. While you're turning there, um, I'll never forget as a kid what it was like to go on road trips and the things that we would look for out the windows in the car. There were certain things that we'd get. When we get bored, we'd play the cow counting game and all of that. But one of the most exciting things to pass, there was really two of them. One of them was the big trucks. You know, because what do the kids do in the back seat? They pull and see if they can get those big trucks to honk the horn. And the other things I would get so excited to see were the big groups of motorcycle riders. Man, we'd drive past those guys, and you'd see them over there. They were, seemed like they were usually traveling a little bit slower than us, and they just looked tough, you know? They had the, they had the, the black leather vest and the jackets on and, and the chaps and the boots, and there they were riding down the road. And I always remember kind of picturing myself with them, you know, like what it would be like to have my very own motorcycle. And to be honest, I kind of had a little bit of a, a bad boy impression of them. You know, I thought they were pretty, pretty tough dudes, and maybe someday I could be a tough dude along with one of them. Probably the reason that I had this impression is my brother and I played this game on the Sega Genesis where you raced motorcycles, and the point of that game was to like kick people off of theirs, and you could steal like their nunchucks, and you could, I mean, so it was kind of a violent game. So in my head, that was, that was kind of the scenes that would play out as we were traveling on these long road trips. And I remember one time Chad and I, after passing one of those groups, were having this discussion about what it would be like to be in a motorcycle gang. And Dad was like, you know that wasn't a motorcycle gang. And I thought, well, of course it was. It was a bunch of guys driving down the road in a motorcycle. He said, well, there's a lot of other reasons people go on motorcycle trips. In fact, those were uh, more than likely probably doctors and lawyers and retired people that had the money to drive a you know, $40,000 motorcycle and go on a vacation. And I thought, huh, might have been a little quick to pass judgment there. All right, I got it, Dad. And so as I started to look closer, I noticed that I mean, the truth is, they had justifiable reasons for wearing the gear that they wear. It protects them. And were they to take that gear off, they wouldn't look that much different than any of us would in a crowd. A lot of them were older, probably retired. What I first saw was probably less based on observation and more based on assumption, on untrue stereotypes. So let me ask you this question. How would you tell a biker gang from a group of friendly, retired motorcycle enthusiasts? I think that question makes us a little uncomfortable because it requires us to pass some external judgment. But the truth is, most of us could tell the difference. Um, There would be certain external signs that we were looking for that would indicate maybe who they belong to. So maybe if they were in a motorcycle gang, they wouldn't just be wearing leather garb. They would have certain logos and patches sewn on it. 
that would identify who they were. Maybe if you looked a little bit closer, you might see particular types of tattoos that indicated and marked their belonging in a certain group. You might expect them to be riding for a different purpose. So maybe they wouldn't necessarily be on a sightseeing trip to the Rocky Mountains. You're more likely to pass a motorcycle gang in town. Um, You're probably going to see a little bit of a different type of motorcycle. Um, One that's built for looks and sound as opposed to one that's built for touring and and, and comfort. You're going to expect a little different type of behavior. Maybe a little more aggressive in how they interact. And um, you might expect to find them in different places. In short, I realize you could never know directly who someone belonged to without talking to them. But there are certain outward things that would give you a very good clue. And might cause you to exercise more caution were you to pass them on a road trip. Now... That's kind of an unpopular thing to say because it does lend itself making judgments like that towards prejudice and and false assumptions, and we have to guard against that. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that we thought it was normal to judge people based on external things, like the color of their skin instead of the content of their character, And, and, and that's a shameful thing that we must continue to move away from and eliminate in our lives. Um, in fact, there's a little bit that speaks to that in this passage we're going to look out today. But that's, that's not the type of, of judgment or prejudice that I'm talking about here. We have to be diligent to avoid that. But there are outward things, outward signs, things that people do that can give us clues or glimpses into their identity. So if you were to emblazon the name of a motorcycle gang in a tattoo across your arm, that would give me valid reasons to make a certain set of assumptions. Or if I was driving behind someone and I saw one of those vulgar trucker girl stickers in their back window, it would be valid for me to assume that the driver of that vehicle objectifies women. Or if I was sitting in a restaurant and I heard someone lashing out with angry curse words towards the waitress, I would make certain assumptions about that person's approach towards other human beings in general. In other words, we can observe outward indicators that give us a window into someone's heart. And I know we can't put too much stock on outward appearance. I know that people have bad days. I know that we've all had bad days ourselves. And so we need to be people who seek to understand and extend kindness and grace and patience and I mean, we've all messed up and we've been inconsistent, but the bottom line is this. If I cross paths with a man wearing a Bandito's vest, I can be pretty confident he's a member of the Bandito's motorcycle gang. If I cross paths with you, what would I see? What do people see when they look at you? In other words, what outward indicators are are present that would point people to the internal situation that's going on inside of you? Does your identity in Christ shine through in a visible way? I wrestled to really get a foothold on today's text. Um, Paul was kind of frustrating me in Colossians. He does this thing where he just stacks all of these arguments on top of one another. So you want to figure one out, and I feel like you have to figure out all of his other ones that lead up into that, because he makes these these long arguments. It's It's a good exercise in reading large chunks of Scripture, but I really found to understand this passage at the end of Colossians 3, I felt like I had to wrap my mind around all of Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. So we're going to try to do that 
together this morning in a way that's time efficient, I want to start by reading verses 1 through 11 of chapter 3. We read it in our introduction this morning. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 5 tells us, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And that's where we're zeroing in today. So before we unpack all of the things that we are to put to death, I want to start with the therefore statement and see what truth it is that Paul roots this action in. Why are we supposed to be putting to death these things? And here is where I very quickly start getting a little bit frustrated with Paul. Because I just have to back up from one therefore statement to another. Those first four verses of chapter 1 seem at first glance to provide a pretty good grounding for why we should be putting things to death. I mean, I kind of work my way back through it and I back up and say, well, verse 4 says, I'm going to appear with Christ in glory. That's a pretty good reason. Verse 3, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Verse 1, if then, or in the New American Standard, therefore, having been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And I look at all of that, and there is a strong case there built for putting, putting to death the earthly things in us. He's talking about this new life that we have in Christ. But the fact that he roots that argument... In verse 1, with what comes before it, means we have to back up even further. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. What, what exactly does he mean being raised with Christ? So I back up to another therefore statement that I see occurring in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. And that's where it kind of starts getting confusing to me. I mean, you look down in verse 20 and it says, If you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I see that Paul, in in making his case for us being alive in Christ, is making a case against these external fleshly things as having value in our salvation. And it's at that point that I start to get a little bit confused. Like, Paul, what are you asking me to do here? Do these external things matter or do they not? Because here it seems at first glance that you said 
These things have no value, but then over here, you flip the switch, and just a few verses later, did you forget what you wrote? Because now you're saying, put to death all of these earthly things in you. And so I wonder where Paul is coming from and what he's trying to teach us. And I think the reality is we have to understand the whole scope of his argument to really see his progression. And it begins at the beginning of chapter 2. As chapter 2 is introduced, he starts by basically explaining to them, I don't want you to despair or be discouraged because I can't be with you. He says, I'm actually fighting on your behalf, and I'm pressing you towards these things, even though I'm not in purpose, they're in person. And so what is important is that you hold fast to this true knowledge that you have of Jesus, that you hold fast to these things that you have been taught. And then we see our first therefore statement in Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, Paul says, even though I can't be with you, you were taught a certain subset of things. And that's how I want to introduce this discussion. He says, I want you to understand that, that you received Jesus as Lord. And that's the truth that I want you to walk in and grow in. That's framing this entire discussion. That's the the first premise of this argument. And then he's going to take them on this journey and unpack what that means. Because you see, they were being told by these external teachers that they needed to live a, a certain external way. That there was value in these certain outward actions. There was a lot of Jewishness in that. In thinking that we earned our salvation through a certain set of, of outward actions. And so he, he walks them through this argument starting in verse 8 where he says, you're going to be tempted by these human teachings. You're going to be tempted to, to be pulled into empty philosophy brought by these humans. But I'm telling you, Jesus is everything that you need. You were buried with him through baptism and raised with him. In verses 13 and 14, it says that you're sinned held to the cross. And this this forgiveness of sins that you've experienced in Jesus, that takes away all of the power from these humans that would say, salvation is in this, or salvation is in this, or salvation is in this. The phrase he uses is that they have been disarmed in verse 15. And so then we arrive at verse 16, and he says another therefore, therefore... No one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. In other words, Paul is saying these people don't get to judge you anymore. They don't get to place this burden on you. It's it's not about that. Human striving has been replaced with Christ. People don't get to set the rules. Then he kind of unpacks what this looks like, and he challenges them with this difference in a a mind focused on Christ versus a fleshly mind. You see, a mind focused on obtaining your own salvation is a fleshly one, and that type of mind is always striving by trying to to cut things out of your life. Like, I'm going to make myself worthy by trimming off the fat and making myself look the way that I need to look. And so I'm going to trim a little over here, and I'm going to trim a little over here. And if I can just live a life that has removed enough of this mess on the outside, then maybe I'm going to look good enough for Christ. And Paul says, 
That has no value against fleshly indulgence. That's like treating the symptoms without treating the root of the problem. And it's at that point that he delivers us to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, in the New American Standard, or if then, in the ESV, you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So at this, at this point that Paul is drawing a stark contrast between these earthly things and the things that are above, and he's saying, hey, you need to focus your attention on the right things. Everything starts with Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. Because once we get to verse 5, he tells us the result of that. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So you see that Paul has built this case, beginning with Christ, um, and, and his general argument is this. He says, I don't want you to get swept back into this pattern of the self-made religion, of this religion that's based on outward appearances. I think that's something that we're in danger of constantly here as well. But he says, instead, I want you to rightly see how this works. First, you are changed on the inside. And then the outside follows suit. First, you are drawn to Christ. And then we put together these earthly things that remain. Verse 5 is where he begins to describe this outward change. It doesn't seem to be something that maybe happens supernaturally. It takes, um, or that happens naturally. It takes, seems to take deliberate effort because he tells us that it's something that we need to do. But this therefore that's attached to it rightly places it in the order of things. First, they learned about Christ. Then they were saved by Christ. Then people came in and tried to convince them that their salvation was in something else. But because of Christ, he directs them back to spiritual things. And only then, only then when their mind was focused on these spiritual things, did they have the right motivator, the right internal motivator to attack the earthly things. And when that, therefore, was in place, then it was time to put to death the earthly things that remain. And so as he paints the picture of what that looks like, he proceeds to give them what I see as two separate categories. They're intertwined, but two categories to help us fight our, fight our fleshly indulgences like, like for real in a way that works from the inside out. And both of these surround developing the appropriate attitudes, the appropriate attitude towards God and the appropriate attitude towards people you see the first one the right attitude towards god is presented in verse 5 through 7 and it says this put to death therefore what is earthly in you and then he gives a list sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of god is coming in these two you once walked when you were living in them <coughs> excuse me Um, as you look at this, this list of, of five things, the, 
The first four have definite sexual undertones. One is blatantly sexual, and the other four um, have a hint of that. They're all talking about different elements. But at the end of the day, the first four, I believe, involve this desiring of a person or desiring of pleasure more than God. And the second, last one, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry, retur- refers to our material things, the desiring of our stuff more than God. And as I look, look through this, this first list that is presented, it becomes clear that in, in all of these elements, the, 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 the central issue is that, that God is too small and we are too big. And Paul says, okay, the the first thing that I want you to attack is this upside-down view you have of God. That made sense before you were a believer. It made sense for you to approach the world this way with that type of priority before you really saw God and understood who he was. But once you've seen it, you're required to live differently. In verse 6, he makes it clear that the core cause of God's wrath is going to be against a people who put him in the wrong place. I mean, it wouldn't make sense if you didn't know God that you would pursue sex and power and things. But once you've seen all that God has to offer, those pale in comparison. How could you continue to pursue such superficial things? And, and Paul here says, no more. Put to death Therefore, these earthly things that mess up God's standing in your mind. But it doesn't just stop there. In verse 8, he gives us a different list. In verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away. And this list says, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He goes on and says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. And then he pushes them even a step further. He says, here, there is not Greek or Jew or circumcised and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And as I look at this list, I see that this list has, um, has everything to do with how we interact with other people. This represents the attitudes that we have to others, the type of conversations that we have with them, the words that we use against them, our posture and approach towards them. Do not lie to them. We're not people who promote division. We are not people who see ethnicity or, or, um, or, or, or social status or, or all of these other things. We look past that because what we see when we look at others is Christ. Christ is all and in all. So the collective case that Paul is building here is this. He says Christ is everything because you are in him and you follow this new set of guidelines and you can never achieve salvation from this outward in approach. First comes Christ. Then comes this outward response. And the outward response looks like this. I'm going to put God first. And I'm going to put people second. In other words, I'm not going to continue to pursue things for my own pleasure. And I'm going to stop treating other people like they are the enemy. And if this isn't starting to sound really familiar to you, it should. Because Jesus said, the most important element of the law is what? To love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
I mean, this, this teaching is consistent from the beginning to the end. And from the beginning of time, God has been pressing his people and saying, can't you just see who I am and see me right? And can't you just treat other people the way that they're supposed to be treated? And Paul, in different words, is saying the exact same thing here. You've come to know Christ, so now let's start looking like it. Now, the imagery that he uses to make this case, I think is powerful imagery. He talks about life and death, something we're very familiar with. It actually is kind of hard to define. I mean, what constitutes life? Think about that for a second. What does death mean? It's kind of hard to really put your finger exactly on it. Um, If something is dead, it's not alive. Something is alive, it's not dead. Um, everything's made up of material pieces of, of atoms and elements and cells and all of that. But there is a, a force, a life force that, that animates a, a plant or an animal or a human being that, that gives us this element that we call life. But it's not so always, always so easy to discern when it's there and when it's not. Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I cut down this scrubby tree that had been growing out of our privacy fence at the house. Some of y'all may have these. They're quite annoying. This is not the actual tree. I didn't realize I was going to use it as a sermon illustration. I need to just take pictures of everything because everything turns into a sermon illustration. But um, So this is one I found on the internet. But my tree was similar. It was growing up from the bottom of the privacy fence, and it was wiggling its way through all the boards, and it was popping them out. I don't know what kind of tree it was. It shouldn't have been there. It was just this little scrubby thing. And for three years since we've been in this house, every year, about twice a year, I go in and I cut all of the limbs off, and then it grows right back, like, like mocking me. Like a tree shouldn't grow this fast. It's like a big joke. It's like, so this year I actually like pulled all of the boards off the fence and cut it down, and so we'll see how it does this year. I expect that it's going to mock me again come next spring. Um, but, but I've observed some things in thinking about that tree. Here's the first thing I observe. First of all, the, the tree that I cut down, I severed it down really low this year, untangled it from the boards. And at first glance, that, that little trunk and the leaves really didn't look that different from how it was before. Um, I, I, I knew as time passed, and, and this did happen, I set it off to the side, that eventually those leaves withered and browned and the, the bark got brittle and it began to snap and break. But, but at first it wasn't like that. It still looked like it was alive. It still had all of the cells. It still had all of the components. Everything that it needed to, to convert oxygen or, I mean, carbon dioxide into energy, to convert sunlight into energy, it had all of the elements that it needed there. Yet, being severed from the root meant that while it appeared to be alive, it was indeed dead. Now, the opposite is true for the root system that stayed under the ground. It would seem that I had removed everything that made it capable of sustaining life. And from all practical purposes, in that moment, it looked dead. It should be dead. It should not grow back. There was nothing left. And yet, it's resilient. It has this life force under the soil that continues to shoot these sprouts up, no matter how much I seem to fight with it. And I look at those two polar opposite examples, and I think, could this be a way of framing Paul's discussion here, a way for us to look at it? 
You know, oftentimes we think that we have accomplished something if we just trim the foliage off the outside. And I think Paul is saying it doesn't work like that. I mean, you can work from, that, from the outside in all day long, but as long as those roots are still there, as long as your identity is still in something other than Christ, you're going to continue to put these earthly shoots out into the world, and that's going to be the fruit that you're sharing with everyone. But the opposite is true. If you replace your roots, if you replace your roots with Christ, you're going to find that at the beginning, it may not look like much is happening. But from that, something new is going to emerge. When the roots are replaced with something healthy, while those other things that have cut off may look like they still have life, they most definitely do not because they are no longer being fed. The root structure, that is the you that Paul talks about in Colossians 3, 3. The foliage, the above-ground growth, these are the things that belong to your earthly nature in Colossians 3, 5. So how do we die to ourselves? How do we change the roots? How do we change our identity? Back in chapter 2, he says this, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, our attachment point to Jesus, where we are raised and transformed into something new, happens at baptism. Romans 6, 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This death to ourselves only happens in conjunction with Jesus. And once it has happened, the resurrection that follows changes everything. And so that's what we're talking about here. The fundamental base step is belief in Jesus and baptism into him. And that changes the core of who we are. But here's the challenge. Many of us still see these earthly things in our lives. Specific things from these lists. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies, religious, ethnic, and uh, class division. And Paul looks at that, and I think he's kind of speaking to us today and saying, that's not okay. If your life is in Christ, then how are these sins being fed? It's time to stop overlooking these elements, this growth that you're putting out into the world. That's not how it's supposed to be. I mean, these were Christians he's writing to, and they obviously struggled with this, or he wouldn't have written it. So it, it can't be that perfection is the only way to know that we're in Christ. I'm not preaching that. There has to be room for a process. But Paul also very clearly seems to say if Christ is in your life then these things should not be and at some point you have some decisions to make we don't get to go on sinning so that grace may increase that's that's not how how it works allow me to take you back to my 10 year old self watching those motorcycle riders down the road let's imagine for a second imagine with me with my 10 year old self that you're in a motorcycle gang all right and it's a bad one and you have all the garb. You've got the, you've got the epic Harley with the ape hanger handlebars, all right? And the, and the embroidered vest and the chaps and the, 
the, the braided beard. I can get a couple of braids in my beards now, so I may be joining a motorcycle gang soon. You get the tattoos that indicate what, what gang you're a part of, and you participate in all the things. You drink and cause a ruckus, and you're, you're dealing drugs and doing all the things that your peers through, and you went through all the steps to be initiated into the gang, and you are one of their own, and they have your back, and you have theirs. Imagine just for a second that you're in that situation, and then one day you say, well, now, hold on. I don't know that this is how I want to live. And, and you see this other group, this other gang, and you see the way that they're living, and they view the world different. It's a fundamental difference in how they approach people and the way that they live. And you say, you know what? There's something to that because this feels empty, but there's a, a deeper sense of meaning and purpose over here. And so you talk to them, and you're eventually led to, to want to join that gang. They have a different type of leader one that speaks to you. And so you go through their initiation rite where you renounce your old ways and you dunk yourself in water and you're accepted by one of them. And at this point, we would all admit, you've died to the old life. Okay? You're no longer affiliated. You've renounced your membership in your past. That old life is done with. It's a part of your past. It's no longer who you are. In that moment, you have declared, I have a new identity but you find that you still have that motorcycle and you still have the vest and you still have the chaps and you still have all the outward appearances and you probably still have a lot of the desires too because old habits die hard. And as I look at that, I see there's several different categories here. I mean, some of those things are very easy to get rid of. You can sell the bike and burn the vest and you probably would. There are other things that are harder to fix. I mean, you could get that tattoo covered up or maybe get it removed, but that's a longer process that takes some more deliberate effort. It's going to take a while. Forging new friendships, that's going to take a while. It's a process. And then there's other things that, that you're probably never going to fix. You're just going to have to learn to manage because you're going to forever have moments when you miss the power and the, the power trips and the, the carousing and all of the things that you got to do. But, but you have this new identity, and this new identity keeps you in check because you know that you're living for something more. And the further you press yourself into that identity, the further away you get from those other things. And so while they may always remain, you're constantly moving away from them. And that's the picture that I think Paul is trying to paint. He's trying to say, look, you can't continue to bear the marks of your past while claiming to be this new person. There's some space here for the process. First, your identity changes, but then you have work to do. There are numerous other changes that have to be made. They are driven by this new understanding, by this new knowledge, by this new purpose, namely a right attitude and love for God and for other people. But it is important that they happen. It matters. And so I want to ask you this today. What needs to be put to death in your life? Next week we're going to continue reading and discussing what sort of new fruit grows in the place grows out of this internal change. But, but today, this is the question I want to leave you with. If you'd put that slide up. What needs to be put to death in your life? What needs to be put away? Paul says, therefore, and what he means is this, it follows that this should happen. doesn't mean it's instant. It doesn't mean it's easy. But it does need to be happening. It's expected that it happens. It's natural for it to happen. And so if you are struggling, 
It could be that you've misunderstood Christ and how he is all and in all. It could be that you're trying to hold to a part of your old self, but, but Christ has no room for that. It's time to let go. We would love to help you with that. We would love to pray with you, to study with you, to help you start this journey through baptism. The invitation is open. Whatever your need might be, come forward as we stand and sing.